Hello and welcome to the Resilience by Design podcast. The Resilience by Design Lab at Royal Roads University, led by Dr. Robin Cox, aims to advance leadership in disaster risk reduction and climate action. Royal Roads University and the RBD Lab sit on the unceded territories of the Kosapsim and Lekwungen ancestors and families. At the Resilience by Design Lab, we work alongside youth and adults as changemakers and leaders to imagine new possibilities for climate action. This podcast is one of many ways to tell the stories of the inspiring changemakers and communities that we work with. My name is Ozzy Lang, and I have the pleasure of hearing and sharing these stories with you. On the last episode of the Resilience by Design podcast, Dr. Robin Cox discussed the brand new Masters of Arts in Climate Action Leadership program at Royal Roads University. One of the key features of the program is the open education framework that has been integrated into the entire degree. On this episode, we dive deeper into open education. And to help guide our exploration, I am joined by three experts. Krista Lambert, Amanda Coolidge, and Tannis Morgan. Each of these individuals have worked or currently work with BC Campus to support higher education institutes across the province with innovative educational resources and models. Each of these individuals are on the front lines pushing open education forward. They are some of the best and brightest minds when it comes to open education. I'll just get you to start with your name and one or two things about yourself. My name is Crystal Lambert. I am a project manager at BC Campus and also a consultant working with the Adaptation Learning Network. I'm Amanda Coolidge. I'm director of open education at BC Campus. So I work with the 25 public post-secondary institutions across the province in the areas of open education advocacy as a whole. I'm Tanis Morgan. I'm the Associate Vice President of Academic Innovation at Vancouver Community College. I was formerly at BC campus with these two wonderful people. And I also was a consultant on the RDB project as well. What is open education? Open education in general refers a lot of times to open educational resources. And open education resources are teaching, learning, and research resources that, through permissions granted by their creator, allow others to use, distribute, keep, or make changes to them. I think also not only just open education resources, but when we look at any way that enables access, equitable learning experience, a low cost learning experience for students that also enables open, but it, you know, open really is based around sort of these permissions, this idea that you can revise something, you can remix it, you can reshare it, you can reattribute. Everybody throw in, give me another one here. What are Retain, we? Retain, reuse, Retain. Revise, remix, redistribute. There we go. <laughs> the five R's. Uh, So with all of those, with the five R's, that means that there's a lot more one can do with an educational material that isn't prohibited through a commercial lens. My definition is a little bit different because I come from a distance education background. So I think of open education as an access piece to higher education. I think about the open education universities as part of the umbrella of open education systems or open education. So 
open ed practices, open education resources, all the things that Amanda has said, but also this spirit of access that permeates through a system and also a sharing and cooperation almost. Administratively, I think of it at a course level, at a program level, at a resource level, but also as a cultural shift level in an institution or within a sector. So for me, that's why open education is so much more. It's more of a big umbrella, but the, the umbrella needs everything that's underneath it for the, the umbrella to actually work or to open. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I think it, especially to have that culture shift, that, that umbrella needs to be there. In this culture shift, what has been difficult about getting educational institutions or instructors to move to this open system? I think it depends on the institution, quite honestly. I've worked at four different BC higher ed institutions, all during various stages of openness, I guess. So it really depends on the institution. There's different barriers. Sometimes these are just awareness kinds of things, but sometimes they may come down to collective agreements and some more tangible bureaucratic things. It's never just one thing, right? There's there's a variety of different things at play here, depending on the institutions. So for a lot of folks who tend to use open educational resources, they may be at an associate professor level or, and they may not have achieved full-time professor status as of yet, which means that they need to go through a tenure and promotion process. And so many times the work of open education or open education practice isn't evident as part of the tenure and promotion process. So it's not part of the guidelines. So that can be definitely a barrier and why folks aren't doing it. And I also think like Tana said, it's a lack of awareness. It's this, it's a situation whereby an instructor many times is assigning a course material and they're not even aware of the cost of what that material would be for a student. It's likened very similar to a pharmaceutical situation whereby I'm a person who's sick. I go to my doctor, I ask for a prescription. The doctor gives me a prescription, but the doctor doesn't know what the cost is of that medicine because it's completely dependent on what I get. So then I go and I pay for my my prescription. And if I'm fortunate, I've got the health insurance to cover it. But similarly, a doctor who won't know the actual cost of the prescription, a faculty member generally will not know the cost of what the resource is. What is different about the learning experience for these people participating in open education? The biggest difference that they might notice (laughs) might be the lower costs. They might not have to buy a textbook or purchase some sort of resource, but actually they should see no difference. (laughs) And we have research in BC that found that students who use or are assigned open educational resources or OER perceive the quality to be the same or equal to a traditional textbook. The other thing that they might notice in a continuing education program with open educational resources, you can design the resources so that they can be used in a person's career and used in their workplace and used beyond the length of the course. And because they're open, they can be remixed or reused in those workplace settings. And so they can adapt them for their own context. When I worked with Tanis at this institution, we would look at the life cycle of a resource and it's used in a classroom, it's used in the workplace, and then it might be adapted for further use in that workplace. And so we're trying not to just design resources for one use or a hypothetical use in a classroom, but actually for a practical use. Tanis probably has a much better explanation of that than I do, but 
No, that was great. And actually, I hadn't even connected that dot with continuing studies because, of course, we weren't in a context where we called that continuing studies, but it actually was. And I think what we're referring to there is this lifelong learning trajectory that traverses workplaces and higher education. So, yeah, I think that that says it really well. Continuing education programs are going open. And to me, this seems counterintuitive because you have these continuing education programs that are making money off of the content. So why would you put them into open source? I think you're right. There's this piece about continuing studies, which is revenue generating. And in some ways, this model seems counterintuitive. However, I mean, anecdotally, you know, the institution that Krista and I worked at, when there were three different programs who moved some of their foundational programs or courses to open content. And the impact that had was actually to increase paid seats. So there was actually a 30% increase in paid enrollments because basically by creating open courses and making it more accessible, it actually attracted an audience that wouldn't have normally started. So there's this whole missed segment of people for a variety of different reasons. Some of them are actually access issues or past experiences. So I think, again, it's getting at the layers of the the social justice driver and finding a way to experiment with it first. The ALN has boldly done that. And certainly in some of the courses that Royal Rules are running, they're they're filling up no problem. So this is kind of thing that we, you just have to watch and, and see how it plays out. And in the end, it actually might be, it might be more successful. This is opportunity for these course authors and instructors to share their work beyond the enrollees. Some of those ALN courses, there's so many case studies and examples that can easily be adapted or revised for other regions of the world and localized if necessary, which is a pretty cool opportunity that can be done extremely easily. Yeah, they showcase themselves as experts in the field and their expertise is spread more broadly than the province. That part of the model is actually not unusual in the private sectors, <laughs> this idea of having a lead magnet. There's a shift in undergraduate and graduate programs towards this open education. There is the Open University in the UK. There's a lot of programs coming out of Stanford and MIT that are utilizing these open resources. And just recently, the program that came out of Robin Cox in the lab here is the McCall program, Masters of Arts in Climate Action Leadership. And these these programs are shifting towards open education. Is there a reason for this shift in undergraduate and graduate programs? So there's actually a shift towards this in BC. There's a series of programs called Zero Textbook Cost or ZTC programs. They're previously known as ZCred programs. So they have full degrees, diplomas, certificates, where students don't have to purchase textbooks. There's a number of them out of Kwantlen Polytechnic University. I believe seven or eight. And then there's a number of pathways that BC campus has developed. So for example, the Associate of Science or project that I've worked on for adult basic education, which is a zero tuition, zero textbook cost program. So learners can receive their high school um, diplomas for zero cost to them. Whereas before they might've had to purchase a $200 biology textbook or a $150 math textbook. And now those resources are all open and free and available for them. In addition, there's a number of 
open courses that are in the process of being developed or have been developed that support these programs. I think too, with my, when I think about the program that you're referring to with the climate change work is it's also a lot of people are going open because it's an opportunity to have relevant up-to-date content. Whereas if you're looking at a master's program that does focus on up-to-date research and open data and information that is coming up on the fly and continually learning from that, there's no way that you can rely on a published commercial resource because that addition for that particular content may be a year down the road or two years down the road and what changes. I mean, at the rate the climate change is being affected, the resources just change daily. Yeah, and there's a real parallel with what happened during COVID with research around COVID too, this whole push to make that open because it was a global impact on people. And I feel like the climate change urgency is also a place where there should be that open by default approach to the content as well. It's the same kind of urgency. And I think that was one of the drivers for having that content and that program to be as open as possible. It's not that much different, really. So, I mean, again, under that rubric of open education, open research is also a player in this umbrella of things. And beyond just getting up-to-date case studies and up-to-date research, is there another way that open education can help aid in this idea of climate action? What I like about the ALM program is that it's went outside of its one institution and thought about how to do this at a much broader sector level. There's different levels of granularity of openness in that program. There's the the resources themselves, the content, but then there's also the courses. And then there's also that broader We Adapt community where, you know, places like University of Cape Town are putting their climate change MOOCs. So there's this community place where together there's again it's that sort of shifting together piece that is happening under the rubric of we adapt but all these things are really important because if all you do is focus on you know a case study here and there that that's enormously helpful don't get me wrong but you can have much more impact when all these sort of pieces come together and it's recognized that this is the place where you go for if you are concerned about climate change and climate action and you you know, are an educator and you are developing programs around this, or you want to ladder into your own master's program, I think that the potential is actually really great. What is BC Campus's role in um, helping to innovate and create open education? We've been very involved in open education since about 2003. We actually, in 2012, that's when it, we really hit off a stride in British Columbia because the Ministry of Advanced Education at the time gave us a million dollars to create 40 open textbooks in the top 40 subject areas. And so we started uh, reaching out to folks across the province to see about creating open textbooks and adapting open textbooks and reviewing open textbooks in those top 40. And then we started looking at trades resources. So we got another million dollars to look at skills and trades training. And then from there, we've really grown quite a bit. Since 2012, we've saved students over $25 million in the province of British Columbia in the area of textbook costs, which is phenomenal. And since that time, the advocacy and really 
the field of open education within British Columbia has really matured. And so BC Campus's role in this is to one, help with advocacy, two, help with open policy work, three, distribute grants from either ministry funding or from funding we receive from the Hewlett Foundation so that instructors can get monetary compensation for the development of these resources and not always have to do them off the side of their desk. Lastly, we also do a lot of work with the students. So we work with the BC Federation of Students and other student unions across the province to help them in the areas of better understanding what they're you know, what they can do as students, student advocates, and what does student agency look like. And then globally, we work with a number of organizations to not only share all of the work that we produce and create and, and anything that's helpful, but we also talk a lot about what is system change so that we're looking not just always at how can we change one institution's practice, but what does a system need to do to change. One way that this intersects with the ALM project is BC Campus also hosts open infrastructure. So they host an instance of Pressbooks, which we've been using at ALM to share the courses that have been created as part of that project. So BC Campus hosts Pressbooks, and that includes the plugin H5P, which is an interactive learning technology software that allows for interactivity within online platforms. And so like quizzing or matching or hotspots or um, essay forms or just about 40 different content types. And so this is a really great technology that's used provincially. And there's a lot of instructors who are using this to build and share open educational resources. The infrastructure pieces for openness more broadly is just so important. Open source technology is a way of enabling. This is um, really important. And it's not just in the realm of open education resources. We know places like Disney use WordPress for their websites. So these aren't fringe open infrastructures. They've enabled a lot of things. Yeah. And the there's this idea of like you're talking about on a granular level, you are supporting open education and student unions and different pieces and student levels. But then I really enjoy how you're talking about at a systems level as well. How can we change the system to enable this to happen? And I was reading the, an article on the BC campus website talking about the economic drivers behind open education. It was talked about as open education is a marketing tool. You're getting your name more out there and um, you're putting out content showing that you're an expert in the community and anyone can really access that and validate. For example, in one of the ALN courses, you could look at the natural resources management course and say like, oh, these natural resource management pieces that they're talking about are actually the best management practices. The other side of it is you're creating this community of people around the course as well. You are creating a community not only in the students, but also people who can take that, adapt it, and then put out something new. Looking at social justice issues, climate justice, and climate action, making those open creates a bigger community of people who can see themselves in that course. Yeah, I think you are correct in, in that assessment. A lot of people see open education, as we sort of talked about, as a social justice issue. And it allows a larger group of people to have access to that work. And actually, something I find most exciting about open education 
is when there are adaptations of work, when people build upon a work. So if you create a resource or a course and share it with the world and someone takes that course and adds activities or localizes examples, that just improves the work, especially because they share it back. And even with this new created work, the original author gets credit and attribution for creating the original work. And the work sort of evolves and builds and grows um, over time by putting these works into the world. I really do hope that there will be adaptations made of these courses. It'll be really exciting to see what those are and how they enhance and improve upon sort of these foundational works. I agree. I think adaptation and localization are probably the key things for open educational resources in general as to why they become sort of so much better and so much richer than other resources, right? The opportunity, especially for this, you know, the particular subject that you're referring to of climate change is what does climate change look like continent to continent? And the ability to take sort of the original science behind everything and then to be able to localize it for the actual context of where a student is, that's incredibly powerful adding that diversity of all these different regions and all these different peoples and allowing them to adapt and see themselves in the work and the courses. And that evolution is just the best part of open education by far when you see those adaptations. So the, the image that's coming to mind is, and when you're saying these open textbooks and these open courses, I'm seeing it as a living course or a living textbook versus a regular paper textbook is pretty much, that's all it's going to be. An open textbook can evolve and become more than it was when it started. Yeah. And they're usually pretty easy to adapt and or edit. So we all remember college when we got a textbook and we opened it up and the instructor said, you'll have to ignore the example in the blue box on page 37 because A, there's a few typos and B, that example isn't relevant anymore. In an open textbook or an open course, anyone can just go in and make that change really easily <laughs> and update it and remove the bad example or update the typos or add additional context. And that can be done really simply. It is a living document essentially. But I just also want to be clear that it's not like Wikipedia. The copyright always remains with the original author and they always have to receive attribution. In terms of curriculum development, we see much more relevant content that we've been talking about, more localized content that we've been referring to, which then brings the students a little bit closer to the content. They sort of feel like they're actually sort of being seen within that and the, the ability to diversify that content for the students in one's course. And then you know, Tanis can speak to this as well is, is regarding open pedagogy. So this sense that a student will be involved in the co-creation of the work. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it builds a little bit on Krista's wonderful explanation of adaptation and the power of adaptation, because the adaptations goes beyond who wrote the book and can put it in the hands of the students or the class in terms of making those adaptations or adding the lenses that need to be added. I can think about indigenization or any other social justice ne neglected kind of lens that's typically been taken to these very academic texts. I also think a little bit about just the, the UDL possibilities. I mean, a textbook can 
be adapted to be something rich around audio, for example. One of the more recent examples of that was a manuscript, a book that was written by somebody in our field around educational technology. And in response to that, there was a podcast that sprung up from people in the community who would volunteered to read chapters from that book. So then to community-based you know, audiobook development around this open text, which was possible because it was an open textbook. And then a podcast that brought on people to provide commentary on each chapter and whether they agreed with the chapter, what perspective, what bit lens they brought to that chapter. So it ended up being this very rich example of what you can do with something that starts as text, is released as open, and evolves to something that's much richer in terms of perspective, commentary, but also medium as well, all through a Creative Commons open license. So I think that's a really good example of the what happens when you explore the possibilities that are usually quite restrained in traditional publishing. Um, that's so interesting. Open education is really leading to these more collaborative um, mindsets and making these educational models more accessible, allowing students, professors, and people outside of the system in the community collaborate in those situations. Thank you, Amanda, Krista, and Tanis for joining me on the podcast. Your experience and knowledge about open education provide a clear picture of what open education is, while also giving insight into what the future may hold. If you are interested in finding out more about open education, the BC Campus website and the Adaptation Learning Network will be linked in the podcast description. Thanks for listening, and I hope you all have a wonderful day.